Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Government have been trying to say this has been unpredictable, but they need to be more creative and ambitious than that. I've had to go and set up a petition to try and get this over the line. I brought it to our minister. I brought it to the department. Nobody is listening. Can we just talk? Call 0818 969696 uh, you'll remember we covered cutbacks in the fire service coming out of the budget, the council budget, last year when 83,000, nearly 84,000 euro was cut out of the fire service budget and this had big implications for Ballon Colleague in particular. Situation was discussed again at the council meeting last night. The Echo's reporting this this morning. It was a motion raised by Sinn Féin and it comes as the fire service has voted, members of the fire service have voted in favour of industrial action. Uh, now, this is on the follow-on from the cuts announced last year in the budget. Um, the council, I understand, refused to meet the fire service at the Labour Court and they then balloted for industrial action. Their shop steward uh, is Billy Crowley, and he joins me. So the council refused to go to the WRC with the fire service, Billy. Good morning. Good morning, PJ, and thanks again for the opportunity. Um, they we, we went to the WRC with them, and essentially that's, we'll say, for, for people who aren't familiar with the process, that'd be like a marriage counselling basically so both sides sit down there's someone in the middle from the workplace relations commission and they try and arbitrate they basically try and find a bit of common ground and end the dispute and what we were saying throughout was that pump out and balancholic needs to be replaced and we said we support the retained recruitment but that that pump must go on their own immediately so our suggestion our stopgap solution was we'll crew the pump out there and when you have your retained crew they'll slip in and we'll slip out. And that maintains the cover then for the people of Cork. Right. Um, a, a bit, a bit for, for ordinary listeners, Billy, that's a, a, a small bit technical. When we right. talked last time, there was this massive chunk of 84 grand gone out of the budget. And what that meant was that the service in Ballacolic could not be properly maintained. So you came forward to the WRC with a proposal to keep that service going. And what happened then? They refused it. They, they, that was it. They said no, basically. There wasn't any reason or rationale behind it. So we weren't able to essentially kind of talk through it and see could we reach a solution. Right. So uh, we got nowhere essentially with the WRC. So we said, right, we'll have to go to the Labour Court on this and let the Labour Court judge it. Mm-hmm. And um, they refused to go. So they went to the WRC, the, the marriage counselling, yeah. as you say. And then yeah. there was a there was a, a decision by you guys to go forward to the Labour Court and council. The City Council refused to go to the Labour Court with you. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Because the Labour Court, correct me again, it's, it's a few years since I worked on industrial relations as a journalist, Billy, and some stuff has changed, some stuff have not. Is a finding of the Labour Court binding or not? It can be, depending on which, which section of the Industrial Relations Act it's taken on. Again, it's kind of technical stuff that I, I kind of 
zone out, you know, yeah, but yeah. but it's a powerful it, it, it body. It can be depending. It it's a powerful body. And the, you, you, it is. It's the court of last resort when it comes to industrial relations and it's to stop this kind of carry on, basically. Yeah. And the city council refused to go there to seek its arbitration. So then you guys took a ballot. Yes. And what was the outcome of that ballot? The outcome of the ballot was uh, 97% in favour of industrial action and 80% in favour of uh, strike action. Now, Will, and this is what people are going to be sitting, looking over their morning tea, going, hang on a second here. Are the fire brigade going on strike? I can understand the concern. At the moment, we do not plan to. However, we have to be able to resolve this dispute. And what we're calling on now at this stage is hopefully by, would say, through yourself and uh, the examiner and other, other media and social media outlets that somebody at a higher level will step in and say, look, this cannot continue. You cannot refuse to attend the Labour Court. You must go and this dispute must be resolved once and for all. Now, I, I think employers uh, refuse to attend the Labour Court all the time. Unfortunately, attendance is not mandatory. But you would think for a public body, like a city council. We we can't find, and you're right, employers do. You'd see it a lot of, a lot of times that we'd say private sector employers could and can. Now, in those cases, the Labour Court will make a judgment, even though they're not there. Yeah. Like what would happen in a normal court, we'll say. Um but for a public sector employer not to not to attend the Labour Court, we can't actually find any precedent for that. I don't think it's ever happened before. And is there any circumstance in which the Labour Court could make a determination without them being there? What we're being told is that, no, that wouldn't be the case. So come back to the nitty-gritty of it. Um, at the moment, you're not going on strike action, but you have voted for industrial action, a work to rule. How will that and we're heading into Easter weekend, Billy. How will that affect services? Well, first off, what we're saying is that because of the amount, because of the, the lack of resources we have in the in the city, that we're not in a position to be able to cover, we'll say, out to the west of the city. So at the moment, we're covering out to uh, ovens, Fernands, Dripsy, out to Lasarda, that kind of way. That what we're saying is that we won't go out beyond the city bones now. So the city bones, we'll say, ends out to the west, out by the, the EMC flyover people will be familiar mm. with. We're saying we won't go any further west than this that. This is the that new city area. bounds. Are you obviously willing to work the, within yeah. the new city bounds? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's our area. And we won't leave the people of the city without cover. But what we're saying is that if we go out to Lissard or Dripsy, by going out into the county, we are leaving the people of the city without cover. I see. And up to now, before you start doing this, the lack of resources, how is that affecting you as we speak, before you take any action? Well, to give you an example, we had a fire over in UCC last week. Um, not last week or the week before. It was, again, widely publicised. We have, as it stands now, we have three fire pumps in Cork City. We sent all three fire pumps to that call. If it was Dublin, there would have been seven pumps sent to that call. So that will give you an idea of resourcing in Cork City. Right. A fire pump is basically an engine that can run the whole show, Correct. Exactly, yeah. So you'd have a, a, an officer in there, a fire officer, to supervise it because just to make sure everything's done right. And then you'd have a driver and you'd have four firefighters in the back. Billy, I'm going to ask this question. It's probably speculative and it might be slightly unfair, but if we had to implement a major city emergency plan 
right now, and you know how rarely that happens, thankfully. If we had to implement a major city emergency plan right now, do you guys have the resources to do it? We we do the best we could. I know you would. I know you would. That's not asking. Yeah, I know every last one of you would sweat their last drop to do it. I know you would. But would you have the resources to do it to full effect? Honestly, no. Yeah, we if, do we we do the best we could, but we wouldn't have the resources that we should have. Billy, you know? if we had another, that's not it wasn't a major emergency, but it was a damn nasty fire. If we had another Douglas Village fire, would you be stuck? We would, but even at the Douglas Village fire, you look at what came in with say surrounding yeah. county towns, oh, sent stuff to in, it, and that. They bailed in, but that left. If something else happened, if if when Bandon were above in Douglas, if something happened between Cork and Bandon, they would have been without any fire cover. So you're stretched to the limit as it is. And remember, it's not just fires that you go out to. It's rescues, it's car crashes, it's all that kind of thing. It is. We had an incident there last week, again, widely publicised, where, where somebody was in the river. And we sent our rescue unit over there, which is the one with the kind of hydraulic arm on the back of it for lifting people in and out of the water. And that was that's only got a crew of two um, because it's kind of a specialist bit of equipment. And they were the only people at it. So one of those two guys put on a, a, a suit, a river rescue suit, and jumped into the water to keep that person alive and was in the water for 10 minutes waiting for a, a fire pump to turn up. And initially it was a, a pump from Carrigaline was on the way to come up to Morrison's Island, which is ridiculous. And we were able to free up a, a fire pump that was at another call to try and close that, that get there sooner, basically. But oh, that guy was in the water for 10 minutes holding on to somebody. Good God. And that's a relatively routine call. Yeah, that's bread and butter stuff. Everybody everybody who's be, living in Cork has at some stage seen us over at the river. It's bread and butter stuff. It's stuff we do quite regularly and it's stuff that we were well-resourced to handle prior to the city boundary extension. No, we're just stretched too thin and you can only stretch something so far and then it's going to snap. Billy, you are the people who run in when the rest of us are running out. What's the mood like among your colleagues right now? Um, people are disappointed. People, our people saw the the would say the boundary extension as an opportunity to increase the numbers in 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 Cork City Fire Brigade. Like numbers haven't increased since nineteen seventy five, which is farcical realistically when you look at increases everywhere else in 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 the council in the HSE everywhere else, and we're still static. Um, so people were kind of, there was a buoyant mood with that. We saw it as, as, you know, things are going to change. We're going to get bigger and better and stronger. And then that didn't happen. And then when Ballancolic was closed, it took another dip. And then when council refused to go to the Labour Court, it took another dip. Like nobody wants to be going into work, facing into industrial action and facing into ballots and picketing and refusing to do certain things. People just want to go into work, do their job, get on with it and go home safely, you know, but, our problem is it's the safely. If if we keep operating this way, something's going to happen definitely to a member of the public and if not, to one of our members here, one of our guys. Mm. And and lastly, Billy, and the work to rule kicks in Friday at nine o'clock. I know there'll be some pickets outside City Hall on that day. If I call 999, will I get the help I need? 
we'll do our best. And that's the best I can ask of you. Billy, thank you very much. That's uh, Billy Crowley, uh, the shop steward from Cork City Fire Service. We have a industrial action about to begin at the fire service because the city council, a public body, refused to engage with the industrial relations mechanisms of our state. These are the facts. WRC, you go and you talk, you seek and you thrash it out. If the WRC doesn't reach a deal, it goes to the Labour Court. Fire Brigade said, no, we're not happy. We're going to the Labour Court. Council said, off with you. We're not going. A public body in this state, a major public body, Cork City Council, has refused to engage with the industrial relations mechanisms of the state. Where does that leave us in 2022? Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Every year, you join us to support a very worthy cause. And each time, we're astonished by your amazing generosity. If you need a light to shine in. The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon returns May 26th to 28th for Cork Cancer Services. And once again, we're asking you to include us in your diary. Include us in your diary. Start thinking now about fun ways to fundraise. You could also host a coffee break or fill one of our change collector boxes. I'll be everything you want I'll be there. The Giving for Living Radiothon. Supporting Cork Cancer Services. May 26th to 28th. Only on Cork's 96 FM. It goes without saying that we did ask City Council for a statement. Uh, we're still awaiting that. If we get it, we'll bring it to you uh, before the end of the show. There's an amount of face. Industrial relations always work out. Everything is eventually resolved. Everything. But you have to make sure that nobody loses face in the process, either side. But if we get a response to our request for a statement from the City Council, we'll bring it to you before the end of the programme. This new government pilot scheme where artists will be paid a basic income of €325 Euro a week for three years was announced last week by the Minister for the Arts, uh, Catherine Martin. And... It has been broadly welcomed. Applications have opened for it. And Matt McGrenahan, who spoke to me before from the Music and Entertainment Association of Ireland, is back <coughs> on the line. Matt, this was obviously widely welcomed by, by you and your colleagues. Will it be a simple enough scheme to get into or will there be hoops to jump through? Good morning. Hi, good morning, PJ. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, hopefully relatively simple to the extent that once you meet the eligibility criteria and you fill out the form, that's basically it. Who is eligible? Uh, you may have to demonstrate. Uh, well, there's a fairly list, and I have, in fairness, I have to congratulate Minister Martin and her department and officials. I think they, they listen very much to a lot of the industry uh, and creating the eligibility criteria. So you, there are a number, there are three sort of large areas in which you, can, you, you must meet the eligibility from. So one would be from a sort of professional status of being a membership of a professional organization or also 
your 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 registration with revenue, for example, what what it says on your form eleven. So that that's one one way, and then you need to then be able to prove that you've either uh, proof of income or for, for, as a professional artist. And for emerging artists, you can provide evidence of the body of work uh, that, that you've been working on, and that you, you know a lot of a lot of same musicians and artists in general as well will very often have uh, maybe a, a low-paid job that they do uh, in order to to just sort of get by. Mm. Uh, and they and and then they're they're living on their art, but they just can't make that jump to being a professional artist. So that's I think that's really the intention of the scheme is to 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 bridge that gap mm. um, and and to, to 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 really look at that that, that artists, you know, f- we we always see the final product, we see the final painting, we see the final song, yeah. I see the final performance, but we don't see all the work that goes into that. Yeah, and that's what this payment is for. When the song all comes out, the album hours. is released. We all wonder at the ten fine tracks of the song or a performance of a show. That was wonderful. We tend not to think about the work that went behind the many weeks and months of work that went into putting that together. That's yeah. what this is to pay for. That's really it, and it's to it's to, to allow artists and musicians and that to have that time to concentrate and focus on that. Um, I, I mean, I, I heard Mike Hanrahan, for example, very. Fine and, and respected musician, yeah, singer, songwriter. Wing, Palamoyne, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I just heard Mike talking last week about how, you know, how good the pandemic was, how good the lockdown was for him because he did have time to focus, and and he wrote an awful lot of stuff. So I mean, look, it was a terrible time, but at the same time, it's kind of proof of ever that was needed that if you have that time to focus and to channel that energy into creation. Uh, you know, lots of good things can happen. Yeah. One thing that I see in the small print, Matt, which is a, a little bit concerning, artists now have four weeks to get their paperwork together. And then there'll mm. be a draw. So yeah. you can tick all the boxes and you can meet yep. all the criteria, but it's not automatic. You go into a draw. People no. can't be too happy about that. No, not particularly, but I suppose at the end of the day, this is a pilot scheme. There is always going to be a limit on the numbers. Um, and yeah, I, look, I'm, 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 I'm going to be looking forward to applying for it. But again, there's no guarantee. It's all going to be based on a, 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 an anonymized and randomized selection process. Oh, that, that's a little uh, unfair. And, that's a little unfair, Matt, I would have thought, that if you tick the boxes and, and, and meet the standards... You you have to well, go I into think a draw. It, yeah, I think it, it's sort of at heart. It goes back to a, a, a sort of an issue. I think PJ that over the course of the pandemic that that really became unearthed is the fact that we just simply don't know how many people, uh, professional or otherwise, uh, are in let's say the music and entertainment industry or in the arts in general. Yeah. There's there's a lot of estimates out there and they vary widely. Um, so it's, it's quite difficult to, to sort of come up with that sort of scheme and identify and then again we didn't, we didn't invent this other countries were doing it before so one would assume that there were templates out there there are I, I think anything that I've seen before in this is, is, has been for smaller numbers uh, I know other countries and other cities uh, but it's been, it's been quite small numbers anything that's been arts related um, I think San Francisco, for example, did one about two years ago for about 200 artists. Mm. I think, I, you know, to give credit, and I'm not trying to 
I think that it is a, a quite an ambitious research project um, from the minister and the department. They have to be congratulated. Yeah. But at the same time, I have to say that we have a lot of concerns about about this basic income as well, because as I said to you about the product at the end, we are very very concerned that this could actually devalue the product even further. How? Um, that it would. Well, uh, someone it could uh, increase competition and drive prices down. And we're, at, we're, we're in an industry that is completely unregulated to start with. So we have no solid foundation to build anything upon. And it's been a race to, bot- race to the bottom for many, many years mm. um, where, where prices haven't increased in, in years or decades. And I even know uh, musicians that have gone back to work um, over the past two years. The, the price of living has gone up. The price of fuel, diesel, everything like that has gone up. And, and it totally met on the ground the here anecdotally from my own pals in the industry locally here even though the venues that you played pre-pandemic mm. want you back they're not inclined to pay what they were paying before pandemic in a lot of cases that that's correct um, and we're hearing mixed reports on that around the country and and that, and that's my fear i mean if you cast your mind back to remember the the, the artist tax exemption introduced by, by charlie hawhey um, and so there's always this this perception out there that uh, sure, artists don't have to pay tax and that uh, musicians or artists don't pay tax anyway. And, and that's just simply not true. The majority of people that are working professionally in the industry uh, are doing that. They are professionals. Uh, but it's that perception that's out there. And our concern is that perception is going to be out there now that if a guy goes, oh, so you're, you're probably getting that 300-odd quid a week anyway from the government, so... You know, I'll, instead of giving you 150 uh, quid for doing a gig or 200, drive, drive the price down. But I also, you so you, you'll have external devaluation of it, but internal. Because if you have uh, two, just take, for example, two one-man bands, two singers that play in pubs, one's getting this and the other's not. The one that's getting this can now make his prices a lot more competitive for the other guy uh, or against the other guy. Yeah, And that's a serious issue. As long as we don't have regulation, and that solid foundation in this industry. Uh, what we're seeing here now is really it's a, it's a handout and not a hand up. We need we need to get our industry recognised as being a professional career uh-huh. path, uh-huh. Uh, and and fix all those things at the bottom. Okay. So, so then all, of course, PZ, there's a, yeah. there's there's a massive issue also as well for for artists with disabilities, glaring um, discrimination involved in that. That you know if 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 if, a, if a, a, an artist without a disability receives this payment, as I said to you, that three hundred twenty-five euro a week is to uh, is to fund the, those hours of the work that we don't see, the unseen work that goes into creating art and creating the, sure. the, the, the final product. But if an artist with a disability receives this funding, um, they will be penalised with their disability allowance oh. or the blind pension. And so they're going to have to use most of this money to fund the cost of their disability, which is estimated at about anywhere between eight and 13,000 a year, just as a start. So they're already in a starting on, on a non-equal... So, so for argument's sake, Matt, a, a, a musician, professional musician who happens to be blind and claiming, yeah. quite legitimately claiming a payment for being blind... Blind pension. Blind yeah. pension will lose well, that money if they claim yes. this. Yes, they will lose, a, not all of it, but they will lose 
maybe 90 or to 100 euro or more, depending on their own circumstances. Everyone's right. circumstance will be different. They will lose that. They may, they may end up losing their medical card, may end up losing all these other things. God. Okay. I, this, this has been identified a long time ago. Um, you know, the, the, the basic income for artists has been treated as income, has been treated as self-employed income by, from the purposes of social protection, which is fair enough. Uh, because it means then, as you know, an able-bodied person or someone like myself, if I if I managed to get it, I couldn't claim the job seekers as well at the same time. Sure. That, that just wouldn't be fair. But I think we it's need a bit to more nuanced than that, though. It's it's a bit it is it is more nuanced. It, it, it really is. Okay. Uh, and uh, what Mia called for in its budget last year, budget submission last year, was to actually create a pilot scheme for artists with disabilities for a few years to just test what it would mean for them if you had no income limit on their earnings per week. All right, listen, leave it. Colin, we're asking for the minister to do that. We leave it there for today. It's a great scheme. It's very, very, very promising and being broadly welcomed, to be fair. But there are holes in it. Uh, Only 2,000 people will actually get it at the end of the day, no matter how many. Thank you, Matt. No matter how many actually tick all the boxes and qualify, only 2,000 will actually get it. There'll be a selection process. But then if you happen to be drawing disability and you get this, your disability could be affected. If you have a medical card and you get this, then your medical card could be affected. So, great idea, lads, but by the sounds of the musicians, not all it's cracked up to be. We'll see where it goes. Experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and Paris. With Blackpool Shopping District, no gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. Yeah. Cork's 96 FM. He's one fella who'll never need that assistance anyway, fair play to him. And Cork's 96 FM, of course, loves Ed Sheeran and to celebrate his return to Leaside, we got a doozy of a competition. We're going to send you and a friend to see Ed, not once, but twice. We'll send you to Parky Cueve on April 29th. Then, once again, in July, 30th of July, you will go to see him, your friend, in the city of love, Paris. Paris, France. So you're listening from next Tuesday, April 19th, and when we play an Ed Sheeran song during the day, you need to text a WhatsApp for your chance to win. You'll win flights, accommodations, spending money, tickets, the whole kit and caboodle to experience Ed Sheeran twice here in Cork on 29th April and in Paris in July. And it's all done with Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. And it's only on Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Cork's 96FM. Now, Quiva, you got in touch with us uh, the last couple of days to looking for our assistance, so we're, we're quite happy to try and help, but then you got sorted elsewhere. You, you were looking for a DJ for an event, but, yep. but eventually you found one. But we still we said we'd have a chat with you anyway, not so much about yourself, but about your dad and about the whole what the whole family is going through at the moment. I was reading about your dad, Peter, um, he's struggling very much at the moment with cancer. How is he? He's not too bad. He's been in hospital now the past five weeks. He came out now on Saturday. So um, he came out the day before Paddy's day, but he ended up back in Paddy's day because he was losing too much fluids. Right. So he's got um, a bag. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, I came on because we're doing a fundraiser for him. I'm doing a fundraising night. And um, I was looking for a DJ. So I contacted half a cork. But no, and then last night someone um, texted me and they've offered to do it for free on the night. So um, that's brilliant, yeah. That, that, that's fantastic. When, when did Dad get the, the news about cancer first? Um, October 2020, because um, Dad was so Dad's sober three years. And he wanted to get healthy and things like that. And he was um, having problems with the backside. And then he went for tests and stuff. And he thought it was just going to be like, um, what are they called? Like um, hem- hem- hemorrhoids or yeah. something like that. And obviously we got the worst news then to say that he had cancer. But that they had couldn't, is it, like, control of it, that it was going to be fine. And all that. And then um, six weeks, he had like a roller coaster on, like in and out of hospital, always had little problems and things. But he, he was, he's always fighting it. And like his positivity is just brilliant. Like he's always putting up his status as being like, today's a good day, guys, think positive and things like that. But then just before Christmas, um, he was after being told, like, you know, that everything's going well. And, you know, he got the all clear six weeks before Christmas. And then the week before Christmas, he's having pains again with his back and they brought him in and I was having my small fill at the same time and we both got, the, he had to go in. The day he went in for his results, I was coming out of hospital and I got the phone call off mom to say, come up home. And I was like, oh yeah, do you know, I wasn't thinking anything of it. And I was like, just tell me what's going on. And they said that it's not good, that it's after coming back and it's after, it's terminal. And I was like, how did that happen after being six weeks before the whole, yeah. all clear? And then the week before, and he's only 42, like, he's so what? young. You know, he'd be well yeah. known as well because the, the the local milkman there. Yeah, he was. He was a milkman for years for Don Dairies, and um, only three years ago, I'd say, or four years ago, before he got sick, he he packed it up and he um, he ended up starting paving, and then he got sick um, towards at the end of the paving. Right, that's an awful shock, yeah. though, to think that everything was going grand, and and then mm, that's that. Oh, that's crazy. God. Like how did? Yeah. That's very hard. How that must, like, and you got that was pre Christmas. That must have been an awful shock yeah. to get. How did you react yourself? Oh, it was the worst. <laughs> I I think I'm the one who just pretends that everything's not going on and just keeps going on. And everyone's like, yeah, sure you are. If you want to go in grand, then grand. They just try and be fine. But everyone else, like the week before, I, um, that was I was after being in with my uh, pregnant, like with my son, and I asked them, could I have the baby early just so I make sure that I'm here for this Christmas with everyone with the baby. So they let me have him a week early. Yeah, so at home. So, like, and that's this this time it's back, and they can really only only control anywhere. it. Yeah, they can only control it. Um, he's he had his keeps having chemo, all right, and because he's so sick at the moment, they're not able to do chemo till he's a hundred percent. So I don't know when that will be starting again or whatever. Tell me about the family. You've got there's you, there's you, there's Daniel. There's young Peter. Yeah, there's Mal- and Molly-Anne. Molly-Anne has Down syndrome on top of that as well, yeah. So we're always looking after her and she's got diabetes and things like that. So that's worrying itself. Yeah, and you've, you've and is it one, is it just one you have yourself as well? No, I've got, I've got the three grandchildren. You've got all three grandchildren. <laughs> i got all three, yeah. You've your work slow down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, he's a, they keep he's, a going. he's a bit of a dinger on the old DIY, I'm told. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's so good with his hands. Like, he does everything. And that's the problem. Like, he's always, like, he's got so much pride. He's done everything always for himself, you know. 
everything and now this time he didn't want to ask for any help and I remember when he first got sick I said it to him do you know dad come on we'll get the house done and he, I was like I'll put up a page no Quiva no do you know I, I'll do it myself yeah. and then when he was been in hospital the past five weeks mom was like Quiva will we do it and she was nervous to tell him then and then we did it and like the support has just been unreal but when we contacted him then he was in hospital and he was like oh my god I'd say his pride was like go away do you know but he was so happy I'd say all the nice messages that people are sending him the texts he's getting you know everyone offering to do something has keeping him going like and it's given him a bit of a lift because like mm-hmm. he came out Saturday and he was like mommy go up now and we're like don't dad you need to rest and he's like I know but I just want to go up for five minutes like and then trying to drag him we like yeah you need to come home now to rest for a while you know, know. but I say it's going to keep his mind a bit occupied do you get scared about the future does he get scared do you get scared oh yeah I try not to think about it to be honest he, he says he worries for um, Molly Ann the most because he wants to know if she's going to have a boyfriend or how she's going to get on in life and we're all like dad she's going to be fine she's going to be fine she's got all of us like yeah. but uh, yeah I try not to think about it too much I know I know yeah. God he's so young I know that's the scary thing like to think I just can't get my head around to think that he got the all clear and then he got then to get sick or I could see him and I go geez he looks well you know and then people, and then he'd be sick like five minutes later and you're like oh my god he looked well two seconds ago and now he's sick again you know yeah. he's always in and out of hospital and he that's what he kept saying I'm going to get it done and we're like dad come on like you know just take a bit of help like you know mm. and everyone's given so much like so much help it's unreal like people ringing us to say we can come up now Saturday and we'll take a look at this and see can we do something like this for you or do someone like we know a plumber he's like I'll help out with the bathroom I'll try to do what I can do and his friends have come along like from his childhood who are like I can do this and I can do that and everyone's just coming together and it's lovely isn't that fantastic though yeah it's brilliant you know. Near and fair. We've got do- a donation and all from Australia, all the way from there. Oh, crikey. <laughs> yeah. So it's brilliant. All right. Well, look, he's a bit under the weather at the moment. Hopefully he'll be back mm-hmm. in good spirits soon enough. Um, yeah, hopefully. Mm. All going well. Tell him, tell him we were asking for him. All I right. will. Thanks so much, PJ. And I hope it all yeah. works out well for your fundraisers and everything else. And uh, whatever the future holds... I know you'll handle it yeah. as, as a family. Thanks thanks very much for being with me today. That's Quiva, uh, 24 years old. Dad is only 42, Peter. And thought he had the cancer licked and got pains before Christmas. And now it's back and it isn't going anywhere. That's the most horrible, horrible news. There's a GoFundMe there if you want to go looking for it and want to help out. 0818 96 96 96. It's tough on any family. Right, great to see a start of support for the arts, says this. But what about the musicians who don't play live, use tracks and pretend to play? How is it fair to allow them get this grant when they've not earned the hours and hours put into practice and learning this skill? Not entirely sure what you're getting at there or who you're getting at there. Joan from Bellancolic. I know many artists who sing to backing tracks and they're damn good at it and they're bloody fine singers and they work very hard to perfect their vocals and their interpretations of songs. I hope you wouldn't be suggesting that they're not artists in their own right. Thank you, Joan. 0818969696 on the fire brigade. A disgrace by Cork City Council. This is the decision not to go to the Labour Court. Who's paying their wages? I hope the public will get behind 
the fire service. PJ, the Lord Mayor, should have prevented the fire station from closing first day in Ballancolic. Locals should remember that at the next election. Uh, Tom says it's typical of all our frontline services, cutbacks in health, fire, Gardaí, so on. We have a bigger population and these services have been reduced. Everything's blamed, but cutbacks are never mentioned. Resources are slashed to save money. Kevin, how can you have cuts to an emergency service, any service, in a growing population? Can anyone answer that question? Kate says, I remember the time of the Manx Air incident, they were really stretched that day. There's an awful perception that they sit around waiting for a call-out, but they're involved in all kinds, motor accidents. If there was a large incident, would that mean people trapped in cars, for example? Well, as Billy said, they will do their absolute best if there was a major incident, but they're already stretched without any of that. And if you had another Douglas fire, they're already stretched. They were stretched that night. They're more stretched now. Uh, Yeah, I had a fire a few years ago. I had to call Carrigaline Fire Service. It felt like an hour when it was actually five minutes. They were brilliant. The fire service is the most essential in the country. If salaries and service is not the optimum best, then these excellent personnel will be lost to other industries. 0818969696. Am I going to Don? I am. We were talking about Harbourview Road yesterday. This was another bizarre little council quirk that... Two years ago, the councillors for the area divvied up 25 grand of their ward funds to pay for traffic calming measures on Harbourview Road. And two years later, nothing's been done. And all that the council seems to want to do is give the money to consultants to come up with ideas. When in actual fact, you'd wonder why they haven't got engineers of their own to do these kind of things. Residents are getting edgy up there. Donna Sullivan from Impact Our Community Matters. Edgy is one word, isn't it, Don? Good morning. To put, good morning, Peter. Uh, to put it mildly, yes, uh, indeed. Uh, yeah, we got news there that uh, Cork City Council were putting a proposal forward at a council meeting to spend the €25,000 that was uh, ring-fenced uh, to implement uh, infrastructure on Harvey Road. Uh, and then... It turns out, no, in fairness to the councillors, they put it back to say, look, OK, we need to look at it and we're not in favour of it. But the council were fairly adamant on getting a survey on the road. Now, when we started out originally two years ago and we were delighted uh, we were to hear the news of the, the, the ring fence money. But before that, we were after having our protests and organising with the residents and we, con- we carried out surveys of our own. And during the, the pandemic, we met with David Joyce on teams, uh, two representatives from the impact group, myself and Valerie, and uh, we done a PowerPoint presentation to David Joyce outlining the surveys. Uh, the surveys were part of a uh, car counting. So one Friday evening uh, in the afternoon, we had just a clicker and we counted cars for 15 minutes. Hmm. We got 285 cars in the 15 minutes. So you do that by four, by the four, 15 minutes. And it was over 1,100 cars on a Friday afternoon. You know, so that's all day on a Friday. It's a busy day Friday. Mm. But, you know, you could take 10% off that uh, from Monday to Thursday, uh, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we also continue uh, done up online surveys. What would you like to see? What infrastructure? Tabletop ramps, speed bumps, you know. Uh, now, in fairness, they gave us two speed responders, so... If you're driving up and you're doing 50 kph, it'll uh, flash green and say thank you. 
But if you're going over that, now we've noticed this, that they were doing 85 kph, some cars, mm. you know, in a heavily built up area. And 85 kph in a 50 kph zone with, uh, we have two schools. So you have Terence Maxwellies and you have St. Mary's on the hill. Uh, you know, so it is busy in around lunchtime, afternoon. So, you know, something is going to happen. There may be another fatality, but I can't, we can't understand. And the residents can't understand of why they want to do this survey and give away the 25,000 euros. You've done it for them. Yeah, we did it. We did the work. We've done all the groundwork. Because, you know, PJ, when, when this was kicking off, when, when uh, with Kimberley and the other incidents near fatalities and things, you know, we said to ourselves, OK, well, let's do this right. You know, we're not going to be wanting for anything. You know, we're going to have our homework done in the background. And we did all that. Now, we've we done that over a, a period of months. So we, we said we'd have everything, all our eyes dotted, T's crossed. That, you know, we were going in there pre-armed to mm. say to the council, OK, we're not just anybody here. You know, we we know what we're talking about. And as I said, we presented a PowerPoint presentation to the engineer uh, and David Joyce. They thanked us. They said it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we were delighted with the news of the, the 25k, you know. And they want now, the council, my understanding is that the council now wants to take the 25 grand divvied up by the local councillors from their ward fund and pay someone else to do exactly what you've just done. <laughs> yeah, the mind boggles, PJ. And, I, you know, as I said, you know, we did a good, we did a damn good job in this, you know, to, to represent the residents and represent the people. Okay. The people they, they'd probably in. come back and say, look, Don, with all due respect, you're you're, you're residents, you're amateurs, you're not, you're not surveyors, and you'd accept that, but you've got data. Yeah, well, we have it, we have it, we had it all compiled. No, we sent an email out to all councillors there last week, because we are aware that the, the LAC, the local area committee, is having a meeting this week, I think. So we sent an email to all councillors outlining of where we're at and, what, and what's acceptable. Uh, and where where we're go- what we did say to them is that okay, so the twenty five k that came out of the LSC, if you want to use that in the survey, do. But we don't want it to end up the most expensive piece of paper in in, in the country for twenty five k, and no money to carry out the works. Then, so we asked the councillors from this year's budget to put twenty five thousand in again. You know, it's a waste of taxpayers' money. You know what I mean? To be putting fifty k when it should only cost twenty five k, and not a shovel swung. Nothing strong at all. Not even a cup of tea drank yet with it. You know, and, and this is what we said to the councillors and we emailed the, the six local reps to say, okay, if councillor adamant, if Cox City councillor adamant on spending 25k, then look, allocate another 25k, which could be used somewhere else, PJ. And it, it really doesn't make sense that, you know, if, you're, if they're throwing another 25k at it, that could go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the councillor saying that, you know, to justify how busy the road is, we had a bloody fatality on the road, the poor child. You know, and they're saying that yeah. it's not that busy. And, and we're saying to them... Because you were telling me yesterday accidents. there were two other accidents at the weekend. Like, and if you're telling oh, me... in 72 hours. If you've know. you got 1,100 cars on a Friday going up and down, the law of averages means you're going to have more accidents. And the law of averages there means that at least one or two of them are going to be serious. And yet they're it's as obvious about what to do with the money. It's as obvious as the, as the nose on our face, PJ, that there, it is going to happen again. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think where we're going now, I think, is that we met residents there uh, last Tuesday evening uh, from Beira Drive because that's a hot spot as well now at the moment because there's two incidents happened there already. When cars are coming down Harbourview Road from Supervalue, 
there is a blind spot there of where they're trying to get out. So we met the residents there on Bear Drive and Bear Avenue and uh, Ardmore Avenue, and they're willing to come back with us now. So what we're going, what we're doing is that we're waiting for the ALAC meeting to be over, see what the conclusion is going to be from that. But we will be intensifying the protests. We had protests. We had we had protests on Kilmore Road, Harbourview Road, Courton Drive. And the people were out with us, and in fairness to them, we they rallied together because they, it's not just Harbour Road; it's the whole greater mm-hmm. area of Knockneeny and Holly Hill. So what we're going to do is that we're waiting for the report on this to see if the allocation is going to be made, which I don't see the sense of yeah. throwing another twenty-five thousand. Which that well, McNugent was just on to us around. there. McNugent was just on to us there, saying he will propose further funds to go forward towards traffic calming. But again, it's more taxpayers' money. Good taxpayers' money is going after bad, and and not so much as, it, a, as a as a bucket of concrete mixed. And as you said yesterday, I, I missed your program yesterday, but I listened back on the podcast and you were saying, you know, to ask the question. And I think those questions, and I think, look, the boys are very proactive on it. You know, the Fiona Ryan and the other councillors, I think Fiona Ryan is the, the chair of the LSC. Uh, and, you know, she, she's, they're all, they're all, they're all, they're all with us. But with the council proposal going forward, but as I said, with the people now are behind us yet again, Mm. with the protests and ask, ask the, sim- had, the simple question to be asked is why do we need to go outside the organisation do we know have do we not have anybody in house who can do this kind of work they had the engineer up in Tyke Barry Road he was up there and he done uh, he done that up there why can't he come down 50 metres <laughs> but I think sense, where we're going that? to be it doesn't and I think where we're going to be now PJ is that we're going to wait for this to, to see what comes out of the LSE meeting we had footpath protests we will be intensifying. There won't be footpath protests anymore. Okay. So, you know, we need to have a look at that. We are looking at it in the background. The people are with us and the people want answers and the people want action. I'll leave it there for no reason other than time, Don, but it's one we'll sit across. Thank you, Don O'Sullivan from Impact Our Community Matters. The ongoing saga of Harbourview Road and why they can't just make it a safer place to drive and for the pedestrian. Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. There's a big story coming out of the States there with regard to the Kinnahans. It's in the news all morning, but just in the last minute or so, uh, Richard Chambers from Virgin Media has tweeted that the U.S. is now offering, get this, authorities in the U.S. now offering a reward of up to $5 million for information that could lead to this, the disruption of the Kinahan organization or the arrest and conviction of the three leaders of the group. $5 million U.S. dollars up for information leading to effectively doing away with the Kinahan organization. Crikey. They mean business. 0818 96 96 96. Now, we got contacted in the last few days and weeks by a listener with a number of health issues, but one of them was vitamin B12 deficiency, which she said is causing a lot of complications 
and which this particular listener doesn't believe is being taken seriously by doctors. Uh, now, Leticia Moss is with West Cork Nutrition and Wellbeing, and on the on the back of that communication, Leticia, we got onto your good self to talk about vitamin B12 deficiency. Is it is it common? Uh, is there a lot of it out there? Good morning. Good morning. Um, I would say it could be fairly common, um, especially with diets changing. At the moment, you know, a lot of people are pushing plant-based and that, and uh, I don't think they realise where they could be losing a lot of the nutrients that are essential for health. Mm. What are the symptoms of B12 deficiency? The symptoms are, there are so many, um, extreme fatigue, one of them, lack of energy, uh, tingling hands and feet, headaches, anemia, obviously, I think most people would would also associate with iron deficiency, Um, anxiety, Insomnia, breathlessness, feeling faint, loss of balance, swollen and inflamed tongue. Now, not everybody will get everything. Yeah. It depends on your genetics, which ones you could. Uh, cognitive difficulties is a big one. Right. And, and so there are so many. Yeah, and if you leave it untreated, it sounds like it can have long-term effects. Untreated, um, it, it, it can be so serious that it could, in fact, actually be... Um, mistaken for MS because of the cognitive uh, side to it, Um, memory loss, uh, uh, what else, the nerve cells basically. Um, So people can get it mistaken for MS. Um, It can lead to unsteady gait, paralysis. Mm. It can be associated with depression and dementia, increased confusion. Um, I've even seen a study where they mentioned osteoporosis. Wow. Now, you can, if caught in time, you can reverse a lot of this. But if you leave it to go for, for too long, it yeah. could potentially become irreversible. Do you think that it's treated, our correspondent believes it's not being taken seriously by, by her doctors. And do you think that's that's a widespread problem? Oh, I can't speak for all doctors, you know. It, of course. It, it depends. Some of them um, would be more into getting to know the nutritional side of things. Others might just be too busy. They've got limited time to be with the patient. Mm. Um, it all depends if they keep up with the latest literature. Yeah. Um, I, I do know of a fair amount of people that do get um, the B12 injections. So yeah. some doctors are aware of it and do advise them, especially when they are dangerously low. They will bring them in for regular B12 mm. injections. Because um, there, there is a condition want... called pernicious anemia, Letitia, which I'm sure you've yes, heard about. Yes. And I know a couple of people who've had it. And, and, and they the, the solution to that is B12 injections. Yeah, so that, that'll be genetic. So it's, it's, you know, for them to get it from food sources is very, very difficult. So for them, it is definitely the injection's the way to go. Whereas other people that don't have it could potentially rectify it with food. Yeah, yeah. But like, um, are there supplements you can take or where would you, what foods would you get B12 in naturally, as it were? Well, B12, you know, um, this might not be popular with a lot of people, but basically um, uh, organ meat, especially beef liver, is very, very high in it. Um, other obviously other animal foods and eggs and dairy, shellfish, clams exceptionally high. Um, the the vegan way, the, the vegetarian vegan ways of getting it is um, you could get it through 
cereals, which is not ideal if you follow a healthy diet. And um, nutritional yeast will sometimes have added B12 to it, which will be a vegan source. And tempeh, which is the fermented soya bean. So there are ways of getting it in if you're following a vegan or vegetarian diet. Mm. Uh, it's just a bit, it's, it's quite a bit more difficult. Supplement-wise, yes, there are many supplements out there. Um, ideally, you might want to go for something that's uh, sublingual, which means you can take it uh, via the mouth. Uh, it'll go into your mucous membranes in your mouth. It'll get into your system much quicker oh, okay. than Under the tongue, maybe, tablet form. Yes, or, or you, there's one that you can spray on the insides of your cheeks. Okay. It's just so much easier to get it in because a lot of people would have digestive problems. So taking tablets and that, you might not get the, the, the greatest benefit from it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the digestion could be... Um, it, it sounds like it's a thing that we should be, be far more aware of. Letitia, and if we are feeling a bit under the weather, and like you say, the list of possible symptoms is very long, but if we are feeling a bit under under the weather and there is no other logical explanation, then we should look into it perhaps. Oh, definitely. Um, the problem with it is that it's, it might not be the first port of call with the, the if you go to see the doctor because it can mimic so many other things. Yeah. But generally, doctors would normally do a, a full blood test with, with the people, so it should be picked up there. And even if it's still within the parameters, even if it's on the lower end, it should still be addressed then before it's too late. Mm. You know, don't say, oh, well, you're still in the parameters, you'll be fine. If it's on the lower end, I would still definitely uh, address it and try and increase it either by supplementation or by food. Yeah. If you would mind me coming back to what you said at the at the start about uh, about the plant based plant based diet that is increasingly popular now and look people is, will yes. people will take up whatever diet make whatever dietary decisions they they make for themselves but what I sense from you is a kind of a if you're going to do that fine but be very aware that this could happen yes most definitely. I think we we demonising meat a little bit too much. That's just a personal opinion. It is an opinion line after all. Um, I eat a full meat and animal-based diet. Um, And I'm doing very, very well on it. Yeah. But, you know, people, for whatever reasons, want to do plant-based, and that is their prerogative, but they just need to be aware of where they could be missing out on essential nutrients. Yeah, and B12 being... Being one of B12 them. B12 being one of them, yes, yes. Yeah. But there are ways of getting it, though. You know, it's not to say you're not going to get it. There are ways. Just yeah. need to be more in tune with your own health. Yeah, which is important. Very important. So, so definitely, other than pernicious anemia, which, like you said, that's a condition that people have and and gets treated. There are other forms of this deficiency, and it's worth getting checked out if you're feeling off colour, as it were. Oh, definitely, especially if you pale skin and anemia, you know. As I said, there's a long, just a Google search and they'll see all the different um, symptoms of it. Yeah. And there's a lot of causes as well, which they're probably not aware. Yeah, what does, causing what does them cause it, it, you know? What does cause it? Well, alcohol abuse would be one of them. Okay. Uh, weight loss surgery could affect it because you are affect, you, 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 you're dealing with your uh, gastric symptom. You're cutting away a lot of the parts that need the B12 to be absorbed. Um, low stomach acid, which could be caused by proton pump inhibitors, um, which a lot of people are on. They get put on them, and they should only be on them for very short periods of time. But they're basically just on them 
long term. Mm. Um, medication, huge one is medication, antibiotics, um, birth control even, anti-diabetic medications, cardiovascular medications. They all will in- inhibit the absorption of B12. Okay. Okay. So there's a long, long line of things. Genetically, obviously, which we spoke about, um, poor appetite, restricted I- intake of animal foods, but we spoke about that as well. There are other ways. Um, the elderly people, what, 10 to 30% of people over 50 have difficulty absorbing B12 due to low stomach acid. Okay. okay. As, as you age, your stomach acid lessens, especially then if you're on medications and proton pump inhibitors and that, you know. Mm. Well, what would one get, a, what would one be prescribed a proton pump inhibitor for, Letitia? Oh, a lot of people with digestive problems, uh, gastric acid and that, um, mm. not digesting their food properly in that, and then they would think it's uh, too much stomach acid, but sometimes it could maybe be too little and your food's not digesting properly. They have you, they have you. Is it true you know, that food, if, if your mm. diet is very bland and plain, and some people like that, but if your diet is very bland and doesn't have spices in it and doesn't have you know, strong flavours and strong sensations in it. Like, can that affect your, your gastric acids, a Western diet? Like, can that affect your gastric acids? Um, plain as in what, what kind of plain foods? I mean, you can get plain foods that are just... Not a lot of spice, and, and more fish. carbohydrates, a lot of sweet mm. stuff. No, I, I wouldn't say about the spice. I, I don't think that would have anything to do with it. But um, you need foods that are going to get your, your gastric acids going. And that yeah. would be foods that your body knows from your ancestors. So a lot of um, processed foods would affect it because your body doesn't recognize half the ingredients in processed foods. A lot of them are made in the lab. So those would affect your gastric acid. It'll, you know, it, it could make it go down. Yeah. Um, foods too high in, in oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to demonize any food groups. No, but no. sometimes sometimes a food too high in, in grains can affect it. Yes, yes, you know, yes. but everybody is different. We yes. almost we need to find, we need to find. Is the, everybody needs to learn what their bodies. Yes, yes. You know, you'd often see on a, on a health food store. Different. You'd often see in a health food store. You might see uh, something has bitters in it to to stimulate. Oh, bitters, yeah. yeah, very very good. A lot of bitters. There's so many different types as well that people can take. What, um, what would they be now? Are they a supplement or what are they? Uh, yes, it'll be a herb. So A. Vogel will do, I don't know, can I say that on there? Can do a lot. Like something Whatever. like yarrow. Right. Yarrow is a bitters. So that's great to take with people. Um, I have a client that, that has a problem with dairy. And even though I advise her, you've got a problem with dairy, don't have dairy. But there are times when she's going to be exposed to it and she just carries the yarrow with her and she has that before the meal. And she says it helps immensely with the digestion of the of the dairy. I've got you, I've got you. We just had a message in on WhatsApp, Letitia, that someone who has um, inflammatory bowel disease um, oh, yeah, can, that can will, find them... St- the absorption. Yeah, that, yeah. So, so somebody like that, I would advise them taking something orally, uh, a supplement orally, so go straight into their bloodstream as opposed to having to go through their digestive system. Okay. Okay, and a good health food shop, I presume, would have oh, B12 supplements. All of them. Yeah, yeah. All of and them. bitters. Most of them are good health it's, 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 a, it's a term I'm not hugely familiar with, bitters. Um, but, but certainly to stimulate gastric acids, bitters are important. 
you would say. Oh, they're great. And, and believe me, they are bitter, but you need to feel, you need to taste the bitterness. So don't even try and uh, cover it up by having it with fruit juice or anything. You need to taste the bitters because your body, you know... Will react to it, yeah. I don't yeah, like what's yeah. coming, but I know it's good for me. And, and, and another <laughs> one that's come in, um, children with a bad diet, and you know, look, it's, sometimes it can be impossible to get children to eat what's right for them. Can that oh, yeah, affect them? Can, can they get a B12 deficiency from that? Oh, I'm sure they could. They can get away with a lot more than our older adults would, obviously. But um, also depending on their genetics, how their mom, how their mother ate, how their grandparents ate even will affect it. How your grandmother ate would even affect your genetic makeup. And it depends on how well they start when they're born. If they're born very healthy and they've got really good, strong backup, they can get away with a lot for a lot longer. Some children might not have that um, when they're born. They could be born to a mother who has a few issues herself. They could start negatively and then they could potentially have a B12 deficiency much earlier. Okay. All right. Listen, good speaking with you and great to get uh, the benefit of your expertise. Letitia Moss of West Cork Nutrition and Wellbeing on B12 deficiency. I was looking this up and it kept coming back to me as pernicious anemia. That's one particular kind of B12 deficiency. There are others and they're caused by various things. Thank you, Letitia, for that. So if you're feeling a bit off on a number of levels, it could be B12 deficiency. And one thing she's pointing out there is in terms of people who are leaning towards more plant-based food. That's, That's whatever it is for you. If that's what you want to do, grand, go ahead and do that. But be aware, be aware that you may need to boost your B12. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Now, the Economic and Social Research Institute has been looking into the use of rent pressure zones, which have been a thing now for the last number of years. Cork, Dublin, other areas, a rent pressure zone where within that zone... Rent increases are capped at 4%. There are exceptions to that where a landlord can increase the rent by more, but it's somewhat limited. Joined by Professor Connor O'Toole, who was involved in this research for the Economic and Social Research Institute. Connor, good morning. Your main finding is, I think, that they were, in general, a success. Good morning. Well, I, I think the best way to describe that what we found is that they have functioned to a degree in that they have provided a degree, degree of, of stability against the upward price pressures in the areas. So, you know, rent pressure zones came in first in, in Dublin and Cork City in late 2016. And what we've done is basically used data from the Residential Tenancies Board to look at, at how proper, properties in those areas have set the rents, compared those to, to other areas since the, they were uh, brought in. And we found a, a lower rate of rent increases in those areas compared to the non or PZ areas of approximately 2%. Um, so it does suggest that there has been some uh, mitigating effect on, on the inflation rate in those areas um, in the period in which the OPZs have been in place. 
yeah. Now, you, you found that about a third, in around a third of landlords did increase their rent by more than the 4% allowed. They were able to claim exemptions and all of that. Where there may be, does the research show, where there may be too many ways to get around the 4% cap? Well, I think one of the things that we did demonstrate in the research uh, was that there were quite a number of of cases where the growth rates were above the allowable 4% at the time. And with the data that we have, we weren't able to actually say whether they they had used one of those exemptions that they're allowed. So, for example, if a landlord makes a significant investment in the property, makes a major energy efficiency upgrade, they can reprice above the the 4% cap for the rent. We weren't actually able to validate whether those increases were the use of exemptions or, for example, was it non-compliance where the, the landlord or, and the tenant agreed to just increase the rent above the, the cap. So, unfortunately, we need better data to be conclusive on that. But uh, we, we found quite a number of those uh, in those cases occurring in, in these areas. Mm. There's often an argument between regulating more, capping rents, enforcing rent limits uh, and the economic argument that if you over-regulate, or the claim that's sometimes made, if you over-regulate that, that, and impose limits, that landlords will, will sell up and, and leave the market. Yeah. Is there any evidence of that from your research? So there's evidence of that from the international uh, research and the international literature. So I think the best way to think about these measures is that there are always trade-offs. So when you bring in a rent control like this, which is targeted to try and limit the degree of of rental price growth, then that can benefit tenants, sitting tenants, the ones who are in leases at present. However, a a side effect or a health warning with those type measures is that they can discourage households from investing in they can discourage households investing in your line the, is your line is capturing a small bit uh, Connor stay with there in, in there a second they can they can discourage people investing in the market yes they can discourage landlords investing in those properties and they can also cause landlords to take the properties off the, the market in extreme cases now that's been shown to happen internationally not in all cases but in certain cases so the, the way we would say it is that there's trade-offs you can certainly help uh, protect tenants against excess inflation but you've got to be very careful because these these supply side effects can materialize and limit the the number of properties in the market and the quality of the building stock, which I think is important. What you're saying to me is that too many limits are internationally shown to affect supply. It's it's not necessarily too many limits, but it's the degree of those limits, how strict they are, how many, what the extent to which they really regulate and limit price growth. So there's a, there's a range of, of complexities which which mm. depend on 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 how these factors pass through. At the end of a piece of research like this, there are usually some recommendations to follow. Um, we know that the rent rent is in serious crisis all around the country. So are there recommendations from your research that you'd be bringing forward? This is a number of, of areas of policy, I think, that are important from, from, from our research. I think one of the clear ones, the, the ones that we, we really should uh, focus on and hopefully we'll be able to get a handle on is, is the data gaps, like trying to understand for those 
landlords and for those properties where we do observe the, the rental growth above the, the caps, having insight into why that is the case and, and being able to report on that uh, thoroughly and hopefully the new data coming in from the RTB, which makes all landlords register every year, will give us a better lens to the functionality of that particular part of the market. I think bridging those data gaps is a key policy recommendation from our side. Okay, listen, thank you for your time this morning. Professor Connor O'Toole from the Economic and Social Research Institute. 0818 96 96 96. We have, as I'm sure everyone would acknowledge, a serious rent crisis. Still, more supply, more houses, rents will go down. A lot easier to say than to, than to do, I suspect. Getting back to the fire service. Reality is it's a very serious situation. Spoke this morning with the fire service at the show to Billy, their shop steward. They are going on a work to rule from Friday. It's an industrial relations nightmare at the fire service and they are so under-resourced right now. He was explaining to me that they would struggle in any kind of a major alert. They would do their absolute best and they'd have all the help they need, but they would struggle with their resources presently to hand. And uh, on the phone, it's a really serious situation. All you need is a house fire and a road traffic accident to happen together. It'll tie up the whole service. I think the City Council needs to realise how vulnerable people are. Minutes are vital in an emergency. And it's very, very worrying. And on B12, thank you for raising this. Great topic. Well, it was brought to our attention by a listener who asked some questions and we went to try to get the answer, which is kind of what we do here. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Comedian David O'Doherty returns to Clonakilty on July 1st with his new show, Woe Is Me. Tickets are on sale now for David's show at the Barras and you can pick them up at the venue or online Online at Abara.ie. This World Circus Day, April 16th, the Circus Factory Cork will host two events at once for Key, Superstar Circus, and Under the Stars, an evening cabaret. They feature some of the best circus talent Cork has to offer, and tickets are available on Eventbrite. Access All Areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, or exhibition coming up, or any live streaming events, by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96. Sarah Bohm has written a new novel called Seven Steeples, which will be launched in the city this evening uh, by Billy O'Callaghan. Sarah's from East Cork, but lives in in West Cork. And the the plot of the book is about people who go off and live in splendid isolation. And Sarah, even though you finished it in 2019, and I'm sure you had no idea when the the pandemic was coming around the corner, like, like none of us said, I guess, at that time, it was very perceptive to write about people living mostly alone. Good morning. 
Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's I, I obviously couldn't have foreseen what was coming. Um, and after I'd finished it, I was sort of editing it, you know, the way it takes ages between a book being finished and a book being published. So during the two years of lockdowns, I sort of, I slotted in sort of clues um, about the pandemic because this couple have made a conscious effort to cut themselves off from society, really. Um, and so I wanted to to perhaps suggest that something massive had happened in the world whilst they'd been cut off, um, that they had that hadn't fully dawned on them, you know. So the pandemic sort of became a part of it. But you're absolutely right to say it wasn't inspired by it. Did you, so, so you kind of did you rewrite bits to take account of a pandemic? I slotted in, yeah, these tiny suggestions, um, which you could easily miss. But um, yeah, they, they sort of realised that. I mean, obviously, you know, they they go out. Um, occasionally they have to buy groceries and things like that and they notice that people are being more furtive than they once were that people are avoiding each other that people are covering up their faces you know things like this like it's all quite archaic so I could put in suggestions like that without um without you know without telling a very sort of clear or um or coherent story I suppose what was their mo- the, the 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 couple Bell and and Sai? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Move away to live with their two dogs in, in a rented farmhouse beside a mountain. Uh, why do they do that? What is their motivation for getting out there and just living off the grid, effectively? Yeah, well, the names are um, are are Isabel and Simon, but I wanted the names to uh, to sound like sounds that sort of express something about their character. So Bell, obviously, being more upbeat, and then Sai, short for Simon, obviously being a, a more of a melancholy soul. Um, but yeah, I mean, initially their project is um, is to I mean, both of them met in Dublin and were living and working in Dublin. Um, and they decide that they want to cut themselves off from the world of other people, essentially. They're, they're misanthropes. Um, and the best way of doing that is to move to the countryside. I mean, it's based it's based loosely, um, a loosely of perhaps not the way to put it. Um, it's, it's true and it's not true. So my partner and I did move from Dublin um, about 11 years ago now. Right. Um, but obviously we didn't have this sort of extreme goal to, uh, to isolate ourselves. So all of my books are kind of like um, taking the basis in reality and then stretching the truth into a, yeah. a better story. Like what was your own motivation to move out of Dublin and down into West Cork? God, um, hilariously, it was um, it was rents, rising rents. Um, and this was 2011. So the rents have just gone up and up and up since. Yeah. Um, but we were able to rent initially in a little town called Whitegate or town village, I suppose, yeah. um, in East Cork. Everyone knows it because of Trebulgan generally. I yeah. used to say to anyone in the whole country, oh, do you know Trebulgan? <laughs> well, Whitegate is the closest village to there. So yeah. we lived there for five years and that's where I wrote and based my first novel and um, and we were just able to rent so much more cheaply than we could have done in Cork City or, or certainly Dublin City. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the relationship between the two characters, it's, it's, it's kind of a romance and kind of not. Yeah, this is funny. People read it differently. You know, um, I've seen some things written about it already that suggests it's like a wonderful love story. Um, and yet in my mind, it kind of wasn't. Um, the ending, which I, I will hold back from referring to because it's kind of a revelatory ending, everything sort of gathers towards the ending. Um, but uh, but I, I'm not sure, in, in my mind, I'm not quite sure whether it was a happy or sad ending. No. Um, you know, the, is, it a, is it a good relationship or a bad relationship? It's definitely a very close relationship. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose it's up to how people uh, how people define it themselves. Yeah. 
I always talk on the programme, Sarah, about the standard of writing by, by Irish women. I think it is phenomenally high at the moment. Um, yeah, that's I'm uh, pu- published by Trump Press, who are a Dublin-based indie, and it was founded by two women, um, Sarah Davis Goff and Lisa Cohen. And um, I was their my first novel was their fourth book, I think. So they're very new, but um, they've been a great champion for um, Irish women's writing. They also published Dear Negrifa, another great mm-hmm. Cork writer, um, and they've also republished a lot of um, a lot of books by Irish women that would have been sort of lost along the way. Mm. Um, like I think this year they're doing uh, Juanita Casey. Um, they've done Charlotte. What's her name? God, I'm terrible. Um, they've done a lot of Dorothy McArdle. Who, sure. Um, sure. Uh, anyway, yeah, names names that people can look up if if people are interested. Yeah. Well, press just have a wonderful catalogue. Just in terms of that and and other women, right? I mean, I at this time of the year I start collecting books to go into the suitcase for the holidays, and of the yeah. little stack of books that I currently have aside and downloaded to my Kindle, they're nearly all by Irish women. I just noticed this morning. Oh, are, are they new books? Some of them are new. Some of them have been out for a couple of years. But, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, this, one's, this one's not a beach read. I wouldn't bring it. To, oh, I'll read anywhere. <laughs> where you're going on holidays. I'll read anywhere. <laughs> I'll read anywhere. So I'll pop this on the Kindle and read anywhere. I will. I'll read anywhere. <laughs> 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 yeah, once I'm once I'm off, I'm I'm reading. Sarah, congratulations on getting a book out. It's it's tough going for everyone, anyone to do that, and you're launching it this evening. Billy O'Callaghan launching it. Yeah, and yeah, the wonderful um, cork writer Billy O'Callaghan's launching it for us. And Waterstones at six, yeah. and it looks like it's going to be a miserable evening. So if anyone can venture yeah. out, I'd be so so and, so grateful. And as always, my good pal John Breen will put on a good event there for you this evening. Sarah, good luck with the book. Uh, it's called Seven steeples. Thanks for that. 0818 96 96 96 published by Tramp Press. A few weeks back I was talking to Kate O'Reardon, the writer of Smother, um, because they're filming, or they have been filming season season 3 of Smother uh, down the west of Ireland, down Clare, Lahinch, that way. But I was saying to her, she being from Cork, why she didn't want to do it in Cork. So I very much did, she said, but the, the facilities really aren't here, as in studios and that kind of thing. So they're closer to the ancient player than they are to, to Cork. That might be all about to change because a major development is about to take place in Skibbereen. The O'Donnell's Furniture Factory in Skib is to be converted into a film and TV studio. I'm talking about, I'm talking to A. O'Donnell and shortly to A. Dean, but a, first of all, this is a major development, A. Why have you gone about doing it? Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, uh, I, I suppose uh, my sister has been involved in the film industry for uh, quite some many years now. Uh, and I suppose I started getting involved with it with the two films that were done in West Cork last year, which was Sparrow and Holding. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Uh, initially, we looked at, at at that and then said, right, well, there's a major opening in West Cork. So what we've decided to do is convert about one third of our factory space into um, the film and TV studios. So in terms of size, how big is that? Um, so there'll be about 20 odd thousand square feet uh, that will be converted to the studios, which will leave us with about 40,000 square feet for 
continue to make furniture. Okay, and that will allow then productions to be based in in West Cork. I- uh, holding, I'm watching it at the moment. It's a superb piece of work, and and you, there is great interest in West Cork, but by other um, makers, filmmakers like Netflix and and those. So here there'll be a facility because we we kind of lost a smother to the West because the facilities weren't there. So the whole hopefully is to attract stuff into West Cork. Absolutely. Um, and the whole, I suppose, uh, O'Donnell's have been very green in their approach to to um, to manufacture. Uh, and we'd hope to carry that over and have a really green studio as well so that um, it, it gives an extra uh, string to our bow and gives makes it even more attractive to the, the film industry. Mm. There must be a class amount of work involved, though, in converting a factory. Uh, absolutely, uh, there is. But on the same hand, we have a building and it's standing um, where, um, you know, if, if you're starting from scratch, obviously, that's a, a way, way bigger task. How long will it take? Um, I suppose if, if we pull out all the stops, um, you're, 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 you're talking about weeks, uh, really? not months. Really? So it could be fit like this is the springtime. It, it could effectively be fit for stuff to move in and... Uh, production to start there in before the end of the year? Uh, absolutely. Wow, wow. Stay there. Bring in Aideen. Uh, you're in, involved in the industry, as as A said. Aideen, this is exciting, an exciting development for West Cork. We badly need a studio like this down there. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Um, absolutely. It's, it's a long time coming, really, because there's been films produced in West Cork over the years that have not had, like proper facilities to either construct or have a unit base offices and so on but I mean with the Wind the Shakes of Barley and the War of the Buttons and so many films have been made here and um, it it seems such an obvious thing to do it's it's amazing that now the opportunity presents itself but I I was the scenic painter on Holding Ah. and I got a call from Martin Goulding who I'd worked for years ago who is based in West Cork he's raising a family in Ballydehub and um, I'd worked for him on a TG Cahir series probably 20 years ago and when I got the call it was so exciting that a film was happening in Skibbereen so there I met um, Steve Park who's also based in Ballydehob raising a family there and he was construction manager so my two bosses and I it just all came to the same conclusion there should be a film studios in West Cork we were Mm. struggling trying to build in marquees and um, the unit base was scattered everywhere there was a props room in Dunmanway and it it was all over West Cork and to have it all under one roof means it's possible. So when we all came to the same conclusion, plus um, my family, the O'Donnells, all sort of said, you know, something, we could actually move part of the furniture business to one side. And then we will have this two-stage facility with offices. Um, We just need one and a half million to get the soundproofing done. But once we get that, we're up and running. And it's become obvious to me as well, like it will be the only studio south of Limerick, of Troy. And also, I've just read in the papers in the last couple of days that uh, 300 million has been um, approved for studios in Greystones, which is only six kilometres from Ardmore. That's a 10-minute drive. So it's all uh, focused around there. And Wicklow has been so filmed that um, I'm sort of amazed that we have West Cork just potential ready to happen. We have such a variety of landscapes and locations everywhere from I mean if you look at Cork City in itself it has original Victorian buildings that have not been messed up by big mirror clad hotels we have Cove 
all the way down Kinsale, right down all the villages, Iris, Alahees, Skibreen, Clankilty, the islands, the magnificent Mizzen Peninsula. Mm. We have forests, lakes, rivers, the, the most dramatic of landscapes as we, go, as we go towards the Kerry border, and so underfilmed that I think it's going to blow the film industry out of the market once we get once we get started we just need to get the facility and we only need what's a drop of the ocean in comparison to what other studios need because yeah. we have the building done and as, as everybody knows now building materials have, are going through the roof yeah. well, the, so the, the, the backdrops like you said are there and I think having worked on, on holding you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm saying having watched it I mean it's, it's uh, plots and performances are one thing but it's, it's a beautiful piece of television and an incredible showcase for West Cork. And you're kind of thinking, if you can produce that, what else can you produce? Oh, indeed. And there's areas like, uh, there's um, an amazing um, tour guide down here called Thomas Deasy. And I ended up, he ended up working as a driver, just as a little jobs on the side of holding. And then it turned out he's an amazing photographer and and cinematographer. And he helped me make a video of locations in West Cork. And the variety, you can, like you look out over Sheep's Head and you don't see a telegraph pole. It could be set back a thousand years. Mm. So we really have the landscape and we have the expertise, the amount of film people living in West Cork that have appeared even since they've heard about the studios that have been in contact with us. Mm. It's incredible. There's like a hotbed of film people that are nestled in here. Mm. So the idea that we could work from home, like I know that from Martin and Steve's point of view, they had to leave their families all the time to work so that we could could actually focus our energies here, stay local and raise our children Mm. and present massive training and job opportunities because the film industry has so many areas that... Uh, people can seek employment. Like every crew is, is, is you know, even upwards of 200 people. Yeah. And so it'll, it'll open up um, areas like if there's a lot of young, very talented young people in West Cork that might have to leave the country for work. But now we have, yeah. you know, hair and makeup and costumes, seamstresses, location crews, drivers, props, yeah. sets, accountants, office staff, hospitality, accommodation. It goes on and it on. Goes and does. It's a massive... I was up in, on my holidays last year in, in County... Antrim, and there was a, a place taken over for a filming for three or four days. And I got talking to one of the guys on the trucks, and he was saying it was eventually going to be a Netflix production. But you're just thinking of the location, the yeah. beauty of it. Like one of my one of my favourite shows to just watch when I need a bit of popcorn for the soul is Virgin River on Netflix. Now, I know it. Yes. 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 Now the beauty of where that's filmed is what does it for me. Yes, Netflix are going to eat West Cork up. Oh, completely. And the fact is, as my brother was mentioning, we have a green underpinning ethos to our approach. So we're going to be looking at alternative energy and, and we're going to make it the greenest possible. Insulation will be um, environmentally yeah. conscious. And um, Netflix now will only want to shoot in green studios. It's their new... Yeah. You know, it's their new guideline. And um, from this, this baby was born. This uh, whole idea only came about last August. And I mentioned it to, to uh, Christopher Sullivan, our local politician, and he's been on board 100%. And, of course, the green ethos, also he highly approves of being yeah. environmentally aware himself. So um, what we just need now is, is, is um, a nice big juicy grant <laughs> and 
to pay for the um, and then we'll be up and running and as Ao said we could be with it we could do it within weeks if we got the go ahead you know it's it's so, so it's so exciting it really really is i can't i can't wait to see it when it's open i really can't yeah no it's it's we'll we'll have an open day we'll invite you all down but um what what, what we just need to look at now is just um gathering local film crew getting a nice big crew list and that's also as um some local Screen Ireland people were, te- were saying to us is gold. If we have the crew, we have the crew on the ground, um, we'd be looking at forming an extras company. So there'd be a lot of opportunities for young people that want to get into acting. And then we'll have job opportunities and we've already commenced training. So um, there's already, the Stan, our locations person, has already been training people up in areas of filmmaking. And I've been looking at trainings uh, young artists up in scenic painting and we have a games developer a young fella Fionn Yule from Shirkin Island and he's already developing a game which will be based on the West Cork landscape so as regards um, putting us on the map for tourism and the accommodation is available and um, Sir David Putnam is um, giving us some mentoring in the area as well so it's it's, he lives down there doesn't he yeah he lives he only lives about Ten minutes from the studio. Ah, listen, this is this is gold waiting to happen. I just know it is. 100%. I just know it is. Aideen, yeah. thank you very much. And A O'Donnell. Uh, before that, yep. the O'Donnell's Furniture Factory, partly to be converted into a film and television studio. The potential of this is enormous. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. We'll look into this a little bit more, see what we can find out. We've had a couple of calls or a message about diesel being stolen by night from farms and dwelling houses around Nagraha and Glanton and Glanmire. If we get any more on that, we'll bring it to your attention. Diesel, sort of like gold and diamonds at this stage. Get your hands on diesel. So it's being stolen, we're told, by night from farms and dwelling houses around Nagraha, Glanton, Stroke, Glanmire. Thank you for that. 0818 96 96 96. Now, friends... At the time, I wasn't a fan. But watching it, the reunion last year, and going back looking over episodes on Netflix, it does, it it, it winds you in after a while. Uh, and you actually get to like this strange group of people, Ross and Chandler and Monica and Phoebe and Joey and Rachel and all that. Now there was the big... The huge reunion last year, and that was like one of the biggest television shows of all time. But there is a musical, and I did not know this. There is a touring musical called Friends the Musical Parody. And it is coming to Cork at the end of April, from 26th to 30th April, at the Everyman. Uh, it's a huge production, and Gunther is played by Jonathan Walker Gilland, who joins me. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Great. Gunther was one of the big stars of the show. Massive 
following. So portraying him, that's daunting. It, it, it is. I mean, Gunther is famously the the seventh friend, right? Yeah. So everybody sort of knows of him, but he's always this background character. Um, and so all of his little reactions on stage, he might not have a line, but you're always going to look at him because he's always going to have a reaction That's to what's point. going on. His facial expressions. Um, Exactly. For me personally, to be able to play him is such an honor. And especially since James Michael Tyler passed away last October, yes. coming back, you know, we did the show in 2020 before COVID um, and unfortunately, unfortunately got shut down. So since his passing and coming back on stage and being able to play him every single night has, has truly just been a, a, a lovely moment. You know, we are a parody. We are making fun of a lot of the moments of Friends and it's a nice tribute. Um, and one of the things that we've added since 2020 is a little little moment at the very end in which we just sort of give him a, a moment and a tribute just to say that we recognize him and we honor him and we miss him. Um, so it's it's been really lovely to be able to play him uh, once again on stage. That's, that, that's so nice. It is a show that lent itself to a parody because in a way it was a parody anyway. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you're, you're there are moments that you're you're busting out laughing and then there are moments that it's really sad and heart-wrenching. You, you know, they're talking about a lot of what we went through in our 20s just in general as human beings and so those were good times and those were hard times as I think we were all trying to figure ourselves out, but it truly was a moment when our friends were our family. Um so I think it's a lovely moment and and time to be able to to sort of re um examine um parts of our life through either the TV show or the musical. Now it comes to Cork, Jonathan, after huge success, Broadway, Vegas, off-Broadway, like this is a global operation that's coming to Cork at the end of the month. Yeah, we are, just like you said, we are the global phenomenon that is Friends, the musical that was off-Broadway, that was Vegas, that did a sold-out tour in Australia. We were doing really well in 2020, um, like I said before, COVID, so to be back on, to sell... to perform to sold out audiences in the UK um, to see, uh, you know, we're doing um, quite a, a few venues in Dublin and um, I- around Ireland and Cork and to start seeing some of these shows sell out. It's it's just so fun. And uh, I- I'm very, like I said, honored to be yeah. to be able to play this uh, on a nightly basis. As I said, I- I'm a kind of a strange convert in that at the time I wasn't a fan. But looking back on it now, when it came through on Netflix and looking back at the old one-liners and the comic timing of some of it, like it was an, an iconic show in itself. Hard to take it on, isn't it? It is, but at the same time, the the script is really well written and sort of includes loads of these huge moments, you know, Rachel walking in in the wedding dress to her returning at the very end of the series. Um, It's including huge moments, but it's also, like you just said, it's all these little one-line zingers. So whether you're huge Friends fans and you'll understand all these little moments or whether you've seen a couple of episodes and you'll get the big moments, it really is written for everyone. Um, And, you know, the cast, we're not like... I wouldn't say that we're all crazy Friends fans, but we're definitely, I mean, we're watching the TV show when we're on the bus. We're watching it when we get back to our hotel rooms. It's always on. For you personally, when you said you sort of didn't watch it in the 90s, but have enjoyed it now, possibly because it's now in syndication and you can watch it back to back to back, you start to see this arc now that Mm. you wouldn't have been able to see originally when it was, you know, 
once a week and then they took months and months off between seasons um so it is i think uh, it's got had this huge re- uh, new life um since the reunion and like i said it's lovely to be able to get on stage and play these mm. characters again we talked about portraying gunther as you do but each character i think to be you know for putting these characters before a live audience who've all, if, well, if they have been fans of the show, they've watched it and they've formed an impression in their mind of what the character needs to be like. So it's nerve wracking, I reckon, to do it the first few times. It is. And it was. I mean, honestly, to get up the first week or so and you're putting these impressions on and, you know, these people. All of these lovely actors and actresses that I, I work with are nervous, right? Because you you are taking on a big challenge. But like I said, the audience has been absolutely incredible and receptive to um, everyone. You know, our our Monica, our Chandler, our our Rachel, her accent. She gets so many comments of like, you are basically Jennifer Aniston. Um, but, you know, that's not just a, oh, she just woke up one morning and had that. These, these actors and actresses mm. really work to make sure that they are getting each line and each interpretation as close as possible. You know, we still are actors. We're not exactly who these people are, mm. um, but we are we're doing as close and as um, as much justice to the characters and roles as we possibly can. All right. Well, I'm sure friends, fans of Cork will be queuing up <laughs> to see it the, the 26th to 30th April at the Everyman. Friends, the musical parody. Uh, the international touring show. Jonathan Walker Gant, who plays Gunther, is also one of the directors on the show. Thank you for being with us on the Opinion Line. Tickets on sale now at the Everyman. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie Cork's 96FM loves Ed Sheeran and you do too. So we want to send you and a friend to see him twice. Twice. Parky Queeve Cork on April 29th. Then once again in the city of love. Paris. Accommodation, spending money, and tickets to see Ed twice. Live in concert. Listen to Cork's 96 FM from Tuesday, April 19th for Ed Sheeran songs between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. weekdays. Then text to WhatsApp in for your chance to win. Experience Ed Sheeran twice in Cork and Paris. With Blackpool Shopping District. No gimmicks, no notions, no paid parking, just shopping. It's what they do best. Two massive stadium shows. Thanks to one radio station. Courts 96 FM. Now, I would say to be a teacher in a classroom these days, all the usual distractions are there. But the blasted mobile phone has got to be the worst. And some people have come up with ideas. A friend of mine used to teach drama. Actually, Rachel Sarah Murphy used to teach drama here across the road, the Irish Film Institute. And at the start of her class, she used to make everyone put their phone into a cardboard box, which she would close. Other places, primary schools, they're bip, buzz, buzz, bip, buzz, buzz. And no matter how much you try, and they're all vibrating in pockets, they're the greatest distraction surely ever brought into a classroom. But people don't like to talk about banning things anymore. So they're trying to get the, the, the pupils to cooperate with a plan that everyone gets rid of their phone on the way in so that no one has managed to sneak it in uh, up their jumper. And 
It's called the Phone Away Box. It's coming to Cork soon. It'll be coming to Carrigaline. They're doing it there. But it began at the Leinster Senior College in Newbridge. And the principal there is Carl Hegarty. Carl, it sounds like such a simple idea. How did you get people to cooperate and how does it work? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Um, no, when I uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. When I became principal here in Leinster Senior College in 2017, it came very apparent to me that a major distraction was mobile phones. Um, and I suppose myself and the study supervisor, uh, Jerry Ryan, we sat down and we kind of came up with this idea of an acrylic box that you can attach to the outside of the school lockers and it's a see-through acrylic box um, now in some of the schools that we have this actually in, we have the school crests on the acrylic box as well. But basically then that it can be easily monitored to when the students are either having their phone on them or they're actually in the box. So it's kind of a, a plan, not a ban. So like that, they can actually, I don't think it's, you know, this idea of banning phones. I think we need to move along with the times, like I suppose changes. Mandatory growth is optional and things have changed. So this has given students the opportunity to they can bring their phone in, but when the bell goes, then they just put it in their acrylic box and perhaps maybe sometimes teachers might want them to use it for their class and that's absolutely fine as well. So it's a mutual respect, mutual like respect for the teachers that they can teach and uh, that the students have, have a right as well to use it at certain times during the day. Why not just insist, Carl, no phones in the classroom? I don't think it's reality. I think it's a nice idea. Um, I would be aware as well and I've talked to other principals where all of a sudden then the student is leaving to go to the toilet five or six or seven times in the one day. Um, so that maybe they're going down to the tiles to be on their phone. If you ask students now and I've said, and ask them, like, what is the biggest distraction for them? They will tell you very likely nine or ten times they will tell you it is the phone. Um, so this is not a kind of case of where you're trying to uh, punish uh, the young people. But I, think, I do think we can do better for our young people than telling them to, to hide it or if I see it, we're going to take it. Um, as I said, I think this is a mutual respect and student councils have been involved in this as well. And it just seems to be gaining a bit of momentum. See, call me old-fashioned, if you will. But I'll ask the question, Carolyn. I know you're a school principal, you're far more experienced in these things than I'll ever be. Who's in, who's in flipping charge here? <laughs> what do you mean by that, PJ? Is it the teacher in charge of the class or the pupil? Rules well, are rules. Like I, I, Absolutely, yeah, rules are rules, but sure, like, I mean, if I think back to it, I was no angel myself, and when you're a young person, if there's a gap in the ditch, you're very likely to go through it, you know, so what I think is, I like, I like the analogy of the whole idea of cars, like when cars came out first, there was no license or registration and so on, I think, like, but then all of a sudden, you start bringing in kind of restrictions and things like that, and licenses and that as well, and this is the same with the phone, I think young people strive when they have that uh, restriction and boundaries, I think are extremely important, and not only maybe even for young people, like, I, I suppose, like, we find that, if I'm being totally honest, I would have used the phone an awful lot more over COVID than I did beforehand. Um, so, what we've actually found an awful lot of, um, even parents are actually getting the phone away boxes office as well, because how many times do you think today is going to be set at the dinner table when you put away that phone? You know, so there's no real set place for the phone. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's an agreement involved in that if a child agrees to use it, they've got to sign a form, and if they don't want to use yeah. it, they've got to leave the phone at home. Yeah, that's it. You know, so it's kind of like it's it's not, you know, as I said, I'm not into this draconian attitude of kind of banning phones either because, you know, some teachers will tell you that they actually use them in the class and they can be really, really beneficial. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, all for that. I'm all for that as well. So this thing of kind of like it's not an outright ban, I think it is quite positive and it just it seems to be working well. So we've seen uh, Wilson Secondary School in uh, Westmead as well and we have it coming into two schools. We're taking orders now presently for um, September. I see. And 
it is a simple thing goes in front of the locker and is it locked with the same key or is it locked at all? Well, it has to be locked to keep the phone yeah, safe, I suppose. Yeah, it's locked with a key or there's a combination lock is another option as well. Um, and then there's a, a master keys then as well so that the teachers or whoever supervising it throughout the day can just take a quick check um, to see that the student has their phone in the particular locker. Yeah, I mean, if a child has signed up, well, children in secondary school, say 15, 16 years of age, they've signed up to have the phone in the box and then it just so ha- oh look there's that phone and that phone so you know there's three phones in one class they're not in the yeah. box what happens then well, I suppose that's up to every individual school to kind of put them in whatever, you know, consequences they want. You know, I had I know one school's actually putting in the yellow card in, into the box to kind of say that's kind of like a warning that they're aware that the phone's not there. And then you can kind of come to the whole idea of actually taking the phone off them. But my heart goes out to teachers because if you're teaching a class and there's some student down at the back of the class and they're on their phone, yeah. what sort of judgment call does the teacher actually make? Do they disturb the whole class to deal with that? Or actually do they just let the class go ahead like an one thing after another then there's kind of you know consequences and there's a bit of conflict so this lessens the conflict we're giving the students the opportunity to make the right decision here I think we're, we're being fair about it if you ask young people like what's, what do they hope to get in school or what do they look for from a principal or teacher it's fairness you know and I think this you know I think the phone away box provides that you know How has it been received by the students themselves? Yeah, in general, I think it's, it's it's received quite well because I think they appreciate that, like, you know, they're aware that it's not been done to punish them in any way or not. For me, like, if you want to be, you know, the best footballer you can be, the best student you can be, you know, you need to be focused on what you're doing. And, like, this is obviously the phone is causing a distraction. Every year we hear about students not getting a course because they've missed out on from five points or ten points, you know, so... This, like you know, I think it's important that we try and provide the best environment possible where students can be focused and there's less distraction. Okay, okay. We'll see how it goes when it comes into Carrigaline uh, shortly. It's going into Carrigaline community or Gelskalosta. Carrigaline will be introducing the phone away box in a few weeks' time. Uh, thanks to uh, Jennifer Horgan and the Irish Examiner for assisting us with that. And thanks to Carl, Carl Hegarty, Principal of the Leinster Senior College in Newbridge. I don't know how people will view this. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a long time ago since I was in school, but I, we would just have had the phones taken off us, put into a drawer, and you would get it again going home, and you, you soaked it up. Simple. But things have changed, I guess. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie. Cork's 96 FM. A few years ago, there was a story in the media about two men. Uh, who got married, Matt Murphy and Michael O'Sullivan. And they got married to each other. Um, Now, they weren't gay. They were just wanted to be married to each other and be together and live their lives together. And that's what they call a platonic life partnership and would appear to be on the rise as an idea, as a concept. Katie Brennan's been writing about it in her.ie. Katie, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. Delighted. They would have been the, the, the two that hit the headlines a number of years ago. But this is not a new concept. It dates back hundreds of years. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nothing new. It's definitely, um, definitely something that pops up a lot throughout history. I think it even dates back as far as the 1700s. So um, it's just that there wasn't a term to describe it then, and now there is. Um, now, I know a lot, of, a lot of platonic relationships in the past, they would have been covering up, you know, same-sex relationships that, you know, might have been illegal at the time. But um, regardless, it's, it's still a concept that's been around for a long time. Um, but I think it's only in the past few years that we're kind of seeing people come out and embrace relationships like this, you know, that go against what's normal or go against what's traditional. Um, for a long time, there's kind of been this, like, notion or this idea that... Um, you know, we can either spend our lives with a spouse or a lover or, you know, we can just be alone. But like it doesn't it doesn't have to be just those two options. And um, I think, you know, people are kind of just realizing that a bit more now. You know, um, people are a bit more open minded in a way and they can see that there is, you know, just other ways to live life. And um, yeah, mm. people are just really considering these uh, these different kinds of relationships. Gir- girls in particular form really close friendships as kids. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes then they're kind of frowned upon and they 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 they, they break ties with one another. Um, but could could you see this happening where particularly women would just decide right I'm going to be a platonic love partner with my best friend and that's how it goes. But then you can you date other people? Are there rules here? Yeah. So you know it's it, the whole idea is that it's it's platonic so um you know platonic love uh, we can kind of describe as you know just love that's not sexual or romantic um so once you know if romantic feelings get involved it's not platonic anymore so the whole idea going into relationships like this is that you can date other people you know you're free to do whatever you want um and i think it's just kind of you know it's all about kind of communication and just when you're going into a relationship like this, just kind of kind of setting some boundaries and, you know, really understanding each other and knowing what to expect. I think mm. that's that's very important. But um Yeah, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole discussion about what love is. I mean yeah. you know, what is love? Yeah. Had Hadaway was the song years what what is love? I mean yeah. there is there is the thing where you can be you can love someone dearly, but there's absolutely mm-hmm. no sexual relationship there at all. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, that's exactly what this is. It's just, it's love that's not, uh, you know, physical or romantic. Um, it's, it's yeah, we can just basically define it as the love that's, uh, you know, between two very close friends. I mean, I think there's like an extra kind of level to it when it comes to these platonic life partnerships. Now, you know, I'm not in one myself, so I can't really, you know, exactly describe the sure. type, what this type of love feels like. But, um, yeah, you know, essentially we're just kind of talking about two best friends who've kind of taken their friendship to a whole other level. Uh, they've made like a really serious commitment to each other, you know, the same way that a married couple was. Yeah. And like, they might even get married. They might yeah. even get married. They might share finances. They yeah. might buy a home. Um, yeah. They might even decide to raise children together. It's just that there's no romantic connection there. And that's that's yeah. the main difference. I, I mentioned Matt and Michael, the two lads that were on the news a few years ago, but there's a, there's a couple now on TikTok. Uh, then again, is it wrong to call them a couple? April Lee and Renee Wong. Tell me about them. Yeah, no, so yeah, they are a couple. Um, so they're April and Renee. Yeah, they're two young women and they're kind of like just at the forefront of this whole thing. Like they've absolutely blown up over on TikTok, like I'd say in the past year, just just by sharing their, you know, day-to-day life in a platonic life partnership. Mm. And um, yeah, they've been friends since they were kids and they say that they've always had this like very strong connection. And they even, they even go as far as calling each other their soulmates. 
Um, and I think, you know, basically one day they just decided that even though they weren't romantically attracted to each other in any way, that they wanted to spend their life together. So, mm. yeah, they just moved in together. You, you, you said, that I, I, I asked you the question, are they a couple? You said, yes, they are a couple, but we have a total different yeah. image of a couple. A couple is a couple that are coupled, for want of a better expression, whereas they're not. They're just a, it's, it's a whole definition of the, of, the, of the name couple or the word couple. Yeah. yeah. So these, I think it's, it's kind of challenging the whole idea of what we view a couple as, you know? Yeah. 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 What happens if one so, of them meets somebody and falls in love then? So I think this is like one of the most like common questions that people that people in these kind of relationships will get asked. Um and I guess like that's that's kind of a thing that could happen in any relationship when you think about it, you know? Um there's always the kind of the you know potential that someone's going to meet someone else and fall in love, you know? Because yeah. I think um, it's April, April, like, April has a partner, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, she does. And she says that um, it's actually been more, ben- her, like her partnership, her uh, platonic life partnership has actually been more beneficial than anything when it comes to dating another person. Um, and that's because, uh, you know, she, when you think about it, when we have a romantic partner, you know, we actually expect a lot from them. You know, like um, we want this one person to kind of be our roommate, our best friend, our emotional support and like lots of other things. So, yeah, it's a lot of pressure for one person. And she actually says that, you know, it's um, she doesn't have to look to her romantic partner for all these things. So it's, you know, he doesn't have to be her everything. And that's like a really big advantage. And for him as well, because, it, you know, it takes a lot of pressure off him. Isn't there a danger of inviting the, the green eyed monster into the room, the old jealousy? Yeah, absolutely. But um, I think, you know, jealousy is, as well can be a thing in any kind of relationship. Um, I think it's just when, when someone decides that they want to be in a platonic life partnership, it can be kind of uh, similar to, say, a polyamorous relationship or an open relationship. And again, it's just all about communication and having boundaries, establishing what each person is comfortable with, just understanding each other. Um, and that can just really help with any kind of jealousy that arises. I can imagine where it would be good for some people. You know, some people are just unlucky in love. They're unlucky in, in, in romance and, and they have a trail yeah. of broken romances behind them. And, and they have this, this great, great friend who's always been there and he or she also has a string of unlucky romantic relations. Should they seem made up for each other? There's no attraction between them. They love each other dearly. They're perfect. They're a perfect candidates for one of these partnerships. Yeah, um, I think like even if you think back to when you're in school, like, and I'm sure like probably a lot of your listeners can relate to this. Like, you might say to your friends, "Oh, you know, if we're not married by the time we're forty, we'll just get married to each other." Yeah. <laughs> like I know that I've like had that. So um, and as well, just you know, when it comes to modern dating, like I think it can just be so complicated these days. Like just with all these dating apps and like I'll just feel like there's so much more to navigate so I don't blame people for kind of getting fed up and tired and just just want to consider other options you know <laughs> I have to say Katie you know you're a lot younger than me and I'm sitting here nodding my head going yeah yep I would so so hate to be trying to date these days like there's so many rules yeah. like 
oh stop like so much and you know I think as well just people are kind of getting fed up with the whole like there's always kind of been one way to do things you know like the focus has always been on just monogamous relationships you know marriage finding the one pursuing romance all of that and life can just kind of become about that but like not everyone actually wants that yeah. um and I think a lot of people are just kind of saying like why why is there just this one way like why can't life focus on other things like yeah. like friendships Mm. And at the end of the day, I think just as long as people are happy and they're not harming yeah. anyone, these yeah. relationships can be a really good thing, like a positive thing, you know? There you go. And of course, the property crisis, the fact that it's so hard to get a place to rent, let alone buy, you know, there's more buying power and more rental power if, if you've two people. Yeah, definitely. I'd say, I'd say that has a big role to play. Um, I think when it comes to the housing crisis, like especially here, it's like, you know, who can afford a home on their own anymore? Like no one, like realistically, very, very few people can do that. And um, I guess, I suppose with that comes like a pressure on young people in general, just to find a partner and get married, like before a certain age, so they can get a mortgage and get out of the parents' home. Like I know I've definitely felt that myself. Um, that in itself is a whole other issue. But yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with why people are kind of seeking out these these kind of relationships as well. Yeah. Something else said, April gave an interview of that TikTok couple and she said, you know, you don't have to worry about keeping the romance alive. The relationship is as strong as it was the first day. You don't have to worry about romantic gestures because we don't do that. We just live together. Yeah, uh, I think like that's one of the, the main benefits that uh, they would talk about. Um you know, their relationship, It's yeah, like they have all the benefits of what you would kind of expect from like a marriage or a long-term relationship just without all the added like, you know. Go on, say it, you know, without the baggage. Without the baggage. Yeah, you know, well. <laughs> without the baggage, basically. <laughs> they don't have to uh, worry about keeping that spark alive, you know. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's kind of important too to say that like, you know, it all sounds very good on paper, but there's obviously downsides yeah. too, you know, just yeah. like like any other relationship, it can totally, totally crash and burn. And I mean, in a way, it, it might actually be worse to get broken up with by a friend than, than a romantic partner. Because there isn't the it. old like, romance there that brought you together, that yeah. kind of, you know, that flame is not burning. So, yeah, you see, know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like you could know this person your entire life and then, you know... I guess you're you're kind of putting it at risk a little bit, but you know, um, that's the thing but, too. You could yeah. destroy a beautiful friendship. I mean, you know, come yeah. come live with me to know me. Do you know you've, exactly. you've been you've been great friends with this person for God knows how long, and then you live with them, and after a week you go, oh God, oh God, I, I don't <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't. don't. <laughs> you're stuck with them. Then. <laughs> you said you're you said you're not in one of these, Katie. Would they interest you at all? No. Oh, Jesus, I don't know if the cost of living keeps going off, I might have to consider it. And, and, know, and um, would there be someone that, who you said in school, do you know what? No, not, I, no. I'm, I'm actually just in a, a regular old, boring old relationship, regular myself. So, um, <laughs> But I do think that it is something that, that like we're going to see a lot more of in the years to come. I do think yeah. it's going to get more and more popular. Kate reckons part. the two women would end up nagging each other to death. And, <laughs> and that men would go for it because they'd escape the nagging. Could be, could be. <laughs> Katie, great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Katie Brennan, journalist with her.ie. <laughs> that you said that, yeah, right? 0818969696. Do you want to be lovely to find? Uh, I wonder, is there anyone in Cork or listening to us or anywhere around the world where we have many listeners on podcast and on podcast extra and on the app or on repeat overnight? 
anybody is who's actually in one of these relationships. Love to talk to you. Finally today, a new book has been published that anyone who grew up or spent time in or is familiar with Paula Duff, you'll be interested in it. Because did you know that in Paula Duff there was a Cumann intelligence gathering group, there was a safe house, there was a landmine factory, an arms dump, and it was all in behind a family home. And a little shop. There was a little shop in Paladuff one time called Hegarty's. And Jim Hegarty has written this fascinating story. And I've been talking to him. Jim Hegarty, younger listeners who grew up in Paladuff, their parents might remember a shop called Hegarty's and they themselves might know a place called the Laurels. That was your family home. What they might not have known was the history. SBJ, um, the Hegarty's have been living there for generations. It was all market garden, as was all of Powderduff and Balafihan, Toker area back in the day before the development came in. Um, but if we go back 100 years or near enough um, during the War of Independence, then the house was being used as a, a brigade house for the Cork Brigade. And the grounds itself were a safe house and a bomb factory, um, arms dump and an intelligence house for the different brigades that travelled from Tipperary to Cork, giving the information to the Cork Brigade. And the two, my two aunts then, Anan Fennell or Anan Hegarty, and a Mamie Ford uh, were also involved. They were captains and a president of Common Amman. Um, so there was an awful lot of activity going on back, back then, uh, and the house was being raided, very close to Joe Murphy's house, which is also a neighbour of the Hegarty's back in the day. My father, John Joe, in fact, was his commanding officer. And when Joe died, um, my father brought him from Cork Jail and wrapped him in the tricolour because the British Army at the time were looking to take that from them and brought them to the Lock Church. Is that the Joe Murphy of Joe Murphy Road? Joe Murphy Road, yes, who, who died on hunger strike the same day as Terence McSweeney. And Joe's story is often overlooked because of the Lord Mayor being the Lord Mayor. But now it's coming to the fore again, hopefully, and um, hopefully the story that we're, we're implying in the book here, or including, uh, will help that along its way, you know. But Joe died after 76 days. Yeah. And Cork City at the time, as, as you can imagine, was a, was a hive of activity, but a dangerous place to live as well, you know. Paula Duff played a, a major role. So Joe was a neighbour of your family uh, growing up, and, and your dad, was it your dad was his commanding officer? Correct, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. Wow. So is that where you got the interest from, Jim, in, in all the family's history? It was really, I suppose, because in 1960, there was a plaque put on Joe Murphy's house. Uh, and I remember being at it and wondering, I was about nine or ten at the time, wondering what was going on. And then in 1963, a lot of men were back in the house again, uh, but it was designing the... Um, the plot for the Republican plot in Dachin. So that kind of ingrained. I knew that he, they were involved. I knew the family were involved. But to what extent? It was really only in the last couple of years when I started to research exactly his lifestyle because men of that time and women of that time, they didn't really speak about their involvement as such. Yeah. They got on with their lives after it. We've talked many times on the programme about Common Amman because in many ways they were the unsung heroes. They used to meet in your family home. 
Yes, a, a lot of the times, yes. And Nan particularly was uh, when full time would come in a man and her role, uh, she used to bring guns and ammunition from Tipperary or from Cork to Tipperary and vice versa with dispatches. Um, and maybe uh, husband John was the embalmer for the British Navy. Even though he was a volunteer, he was the embalmer for the British Navy. And when the Americans came in to the war and their casualties then coming from Europe, they stopped off in uh, in Cove to be embalmed, put back in uniform, American uniform, and side guns. But a lot of the time, those side guns uh, found their way to pull it off rather than <laughs> on state side. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. And and the Ford family are still in the undertake business there in, in French's Key. Oh, crikey. So everybody knows Ford's funeral home. That's the same Ford's. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but back in 1922, 20, uh, Mamie and, um, well, they got married in 1920, but in 1922, I think they established their own business. Again, we're now talking the middle of the Civil War as such, and that developed into the family business that's there today, you know. Now, the, the little shop, uh, which younger listeners, their parents might might remember, they probably wouldn't. The shop closed when the 70s, was it? Shop closed, um, or the shop, the family shop closed around 1977. Hmm. But it was kind of a um, a service for the whole area at the time, because Ballyfihan was being built, uh, as was a lot of talker at the time. Probably the only phone in the area, so phone calls would come in from time to time um, in the middle of the night, so we'd have to go and see the people who who it was because fridges were another thing that were scarce yeah uh, i remember one particular incident where around christmas eve i think um my mother was in the shop and a local curate a young curate came in with three or four turkeys and said mrs Hegarty, would you ever put those in for me and uh, i collected the rest of them after christmas she said, I'll put them in, all right, Father, but you won't be collecting them after Christmas because I know of some deserving families who would like a, a turkey a turkey Christmas dinner. <laughs> so she wasn't afraid to stand up for the priest either? No, no. Do you think that the people coming in and out for their bits and pieces had any idea what was going on behind closed doors late at night? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the shop was established, I think, in the early 50s. So it wasn't there during the War of Independence yeah. or uh, the Civil War. Uh, but it was still a community area because, um, you know, John Joe was bringing uh, messages and everything through into the city for delivery into the shops and markets, Cold K, up to Shandon Street, I remember going. And, of course, into the barracks, the RIC barracks, where he would have been picking up information from them, which he would have used then later on against them, obviously, you know. I think you were toying with the idea of writing a book for some time. What what was the what was the influence in the end? The influence in the end, I suppose, was lockdown to to a degree. Um, I had got my father's papers some years ago, um, and then uh, during lockdown, I got I was in get my aunt's papers, so uh, that opened up a whole new chapter. Hmm. Uh, and then it was really a tribute to them. It was never really intended to be a book as such. Uh, it was to be a kind of a diary for the legacy for my family and Fennel family and the, the Ford family. But it just kind of took on legs then after that and has, has grown. When, when you got the papers, Jim, had you any idea really how how deeply embedded in this they had been? Hadn't a clue. Absolutely no idea. Uh, the, you know, the burning of barracks, the raiding of 
the railways uh, going into Murray Shop. Actually, that was one of the raids that was uh, uh, was done by by H Company and and other companies involved. The nice thing about the other night, of course, was that. The present owners of um, Murray's, the O'Connell, Georgina and Maria, turned up at the book launch. Hmm. This is the famous Murray's on Patrick Street. Patrick Street, yeah, yeah. Another one that that I had no idea about was during the truce. Uh, all the um, British Navy, our British Army arms were being shipped over to the UK, and then. What happened, again, intelligence gathering by men and women of common Amman and volunteers, the IRA um, sailed out after that particular boat, after capturing a, a tugboat, and directed, got on board by pretending that they had a message for the Admiralty, and um, had it directed to Ballycotton, where there was about 200 lorries waiting to unload the whole... Um, <laughs> The whole shipment, you know. Jim, as well as the launch, which was the other night, and the the book is on sale now, there's an exhibition in the library. I think that came as a complete surprise to you. It did, actually. Well, the whole thing came as a surprise, really, because when the the library offered to to launch it, uh, which was fantastic, um, they really pushed the boat out and gave us areas to display artefacts, uh, including the wed- part of the wedding dress and all of that type of stuff. Um, and now it's running until after Easter. And that's got a very good reaction. And and then other people came on board as well, because we had volunteers, guys dressed as volunteers last Thursday night, and a piper who piped the Lord Mayor in to, to launch the book. So fellas like Adam Duggan and, and those... Um, so we can't be thankful enough to the City Library and yeah. that it's part, uh, it's part of the... Uh, lifelong learning festive. Yeah. So, Jim, where where can we get the book? At the moment, the book is available online through lettertechbookstore.com, who were the self-publishers of the book for us. Now, family members here obviously have copies as well, but online, that's where it is. Uh, Hopefully, or maybe some of the bookstores might be interested at a point in time, but yes, so it's online through Lettertech. All right, Jim, thanks for telling us the story. And again, thank you for unearthing and preserving yet another great Cork story. Thank you. That's Jim Hegarty. The book is called The Hegartys of the Laurels. You, you just have no idea of the history lying behind walls and ditches and shop fronts around our city and county. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for that. And that's it for today. The programme edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. And we shall see you tomorrow, just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the Cork City Marathon. Take on your next challenge this June by running solo or with a team. Register at CorkCityMarathon.ie.